This is The Beat Generation, a look at music throughout the years that changed our world, from the original beat poets of the 50s through to the musicians of the 60s until today. They've become known for their influence on music that has shaped the soundtrack of our lives, simply known as The Beat Generation. Welcome to a brand new season of The Beat Generation, produced in association with Bad Boys Media and Townsville's Triple TFM. The show got its name from the 50s and 60s writers that inspired so many musicians, and each week during season three, we'll take a look into albums that have changed our lives by artists that have changed the face of the musical landscape. A full song listing can be found at our Facebook page, forward slash music that changed the world, and make sure you check out our Instagram page, The Beat Generation Podcast. A podcast of this show and past episodes can be found on Apple, along with other great Bad Boys media shows, including The Bad Boys Unleashed and Secret Men's Business. Check out our shows, and if you like what you hear, then make sure you leave us a review. So sit back, put your headphones on, crank up the dial, and journey with us this week on our final Season 3 episode as we take a look at an album by an artist who shined a light on the Seattle grunge movement. They also were responsible for one of the biggest bands in the world, the Foo Fighters, and single-handedly changed the music industry. The band, of course, was Nirvana, and the album was Nevermind. Welcome to The Beat Generation. I'm Shane Bryan, joined this season by my co-host, Andrew Hackett. We're normally hosting the Bad Boys Unleashed together, but we thought we would both jump on Beat Generation this year to share these iconic albums with you. Andrew, welcome to the show this week. Our final one for season three. It has been an incredible journey. Look, mate, I've got to say I've loved this season, but I will say there is no band that we have talked about in this season that is bigger on my playlist than Nirvana. Love them, love them, love them. They are. They are pretty massive. And uh, I, I did sort of question uh, for about two seconds whether we should do a, a show based on Nirvana, but they are one of the biggest bands that ever existed, and it's for such a short period of time. Yeah, tragically short, in fact. And, you know, I think if anybody is asked, most people would say if there was a band that you could bring back somehow, mm. they'd be saying, we'd love to see where Nirvana went. Yeah, absolutely. Look, also during the today's show, uh, I managed to dig up a radio interview uh, it is uh, an interview that was recorded for the Nevermind album called Nevermind, It's an Interview. It was recorded by Kurt Thomas of WFNX in Boston, and he recorded it with Kurt Cobain, Chris Novoselic, and Dave Grohl. So there'll be snippets of that interview throughout this show. Can't wait to hear it. Can't wait to hear it. Of course, Nirvana, 1991. It was the little album with a floating baby on the cover that was released on an unsuspecting world. And, of course, it kicked the king of pop, Michael Jackson, off the charts. Nevermind was intended to sound like the Bay City Rollers getting attacked by Black Sabbath. It was an oral landscape of the emerging Seattle grunge scene, and Kurt Cobain was its Van Gogh. Nirvana had emerged in 87, just as grunge was hitting the scene. By the early 90s, there were five big bands that were showing the world what Seattle grunge was all about. They were the Stone Temple Pilots, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, and of course, Nirvana. Now, grunge was the orphan child of punk and metal, addressing themes of 
alienation, self-abuse, neglect and the desire for freedom. If there was anyone who was responsible for the success of Nirvana in the grunge scene, and possibly even the grunge scene itself, apart from the band, it was producer Butch Vig, who eventually went on to form the band Garbage. Now, Nirvana's previous album, Bleach, was a lo-fi sounding record, and Vig wanted to change all of that. Yeah, we worked with him in the springtime when we when we did that demo. He was just easy to work with, laid back, and uh, really attentive to what's going on. He works hard, but he doesn't work the band hard. Convincing Kurt Cobain to produce a more polished sound was no easy task, but Butch managed to do so, even getting Kurt to double-layer his vocals, and so began the recording of an album that would change the face of the musical landscape literally. Kurt Cobain's guitar sound set the tone for the other bands to follow and essentially became the go-to sound for the 90s. Chris Novoselic, the other founding member of Nirvana, was on bass and around the same time the original drummer, Chad Channing, left the band. We laid down about six, seven songs, which was like um, Lithium, In Bloom, uh, Polly, Polly, Oh Dive. B-Side of Sliver made it out, uh, Stay Away. Anyway, we went there in the spring to record a record, right? Right after we finished recording the record, we went on this um, about eight-week tour of the U.S., starting in Madison. We got as far as New York, and everything was geared up to you know, put out this second Nirvana record. We were going to record maybe a few more songs in Seattle. This was going to be on Sub Pop, This was right? going to be Sub Pop. This was going to be our second record, right? It was supposed to come out probably September of 1990. And, well, once we got off that tour, that's when we lost Chad. So there's uncertainty with that. We didn't want to release it. If we wanted to do anything, we wanted to do it with a new drummer. This opened up an opportunity for a new drummer from a hardcore punk band. They found him, and his name, of course, was Dave Grohl, who went on to form probably the biggest band in the world, the Foo Fighters. The team was set. The album was being created, and all it needed was a name. Something better than the name Kurt was floating around called Sheep. Eventually, Cobain grew tired of trying to find the right title and out of frustration and apathy, suggested, never mind. The name stuck and has become part of the grunge attitude on life. Of course, it also was part of the title of an album that Cobain and everyone else who came out of the punk scene loved. Never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols. Nevermind was born and Seattle grunge was etched into the ears of the masses. The song that we're going to kick the show off with today is possibly one of the album's quietest tracks, yet one of the most impactful. Lithium describes a man who turns to religion to stop being suicidal after the breakup from his girlfriend. The song's title is a direct reference to Karl Marx's description as religion being an opiate to the masses, and the subject matter also dives into areas of bipolar behaviour. This is Lithium from Nirvana's Nevermind on The Beat Generation. I'm so happy Cause today Found my friends Here in my head I'm so ugly That's okay Cause so are you Bogomiers Sunday morning Is every day For all I care I'm not scared Light my candles In our days Cause I found God Yeah Yeah, 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 yeah
so happy Cause today I found my friends In my head I'm so ugly That's okay Cause so are you Broke on me is Sunday morning Is every day for all I care And I'm not scared Light my candles In our days Cause I found God Lithium proved one of the hardest songs to record as the band would keep speeding up. To stop this, Butch Vig made the band play to a click track, a tapping sound to ensure the tempo remained the same. It was the start of many areas that Vig retrained the band to try and produce the best sound. The other major effect on the album was the studio, recorded in the Sound City studio, famous for producing platinum-selling albums by Johnny Cash, Neil Young, Fleetwood Mac, Elton John, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Bob Dylan, Guns N' Roses, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Metallica. It was about time that the band recorded something. Finally, it had been so long. It's called Sound City and... The board and the room are really old. The board is from the early 70s. All the dinosaurs have recorded there, uh, Fleetwood Mac, uh, Cheap Trick. There's nothing more disgusting than the late 80s or early 90s slick sound. You know, you just can't escape it. No matter how retro and old you try to be or what kind of old equipment you use, you still can't help but sound new. We got a warm sound out of that place. It had been two years since Bleach. It had been a while since the band had gone in and recorded a full LP, so it was more of like, wow, okay, we're in the studio, let's just get this done, let's just do it. We made the record we wanted to make. We didn't have any, we didn't want to make the number one record. In 2011, the Sound City Studios closed its doors, and in an act of nostalgia, Dave Grohl purchased the original Neve console and installed it in his Studio 606. It was the focus of a documentary called Sound City, which is definitely worth a watch if you get a chance. Now, speaking of Dave Grohl, joining Nirvana as the drummer came about through an introduction from the Melvins, and little did anyone know at the time what an important decision it was in the career of the young drummer. He's the most well-adjusted boy I've ever met. He's totally easy to get along with. Everyone loves him. He plays drums better than any drummer I've ever heard. I mean, he he blows away John Bonham. If I had a, if you know, if I had the choice of like bringing John Bonham back to life or to choose of any drummer of any band I I couldn't even think of, they wouldn't be better than Dave. He's great. He's great. Yeah, he's he's the backbone of the band. In 1990, we were on tour, doing a tour of America, 
and we were halfway through the tour in Los Angeles. Their tour made it as far as Los Angeles, and their bass player flew the coop. We got stranded there. There wasn't really much to do, and I called my friend Buzz Osborne, who um, is a singer for the Melvins. We'd known each other for a while. Mutual friend of Kurt and Chris. Yeah. He's actually the one that introduced them to each other, and he ended up introducing me to the band. And he just said that... Um, they were looking for a drummer and that they saw screenplay in San Francisco and thought it was really good. Blah, blah, blah. No romantic story. We were just blown away by the whole whole band, especially the drummer. The drummer was really good. I called him up. When he called up, we we're like, yeah, man, come on up. The strangest thing about it was moving up to the Northwest with no money and nothing. I mean, I didn't, I'd still only have like a bag of clothes and I have drums. I bought a bed a couple months ago, so I have a room with this futon on the floor. But, I mean, I don't have anything, so I didn't really have to move. That was a very young Dave Grohl. And so began the journey of Nevermind and the start of one of the biggest bands with the shortest career that has had an even bigger effect on music. Let's take a listen to In Bloom from Nevermind. This is Nirvana on The Beat Generation. Where the 
songwriting process for Kurt Cobain was an interesting process. Looking back on the musings of the lead singer of Nirvana, it is easy to see why he has been hailed as a spokesman for Generation X, as many of his lyrics were fueled with angst and spoke out against the establishment, but it wasn't as focused and directed as many would think. In fact, the songwriting style was a lot looser. Kurt explains. It's usually done on acoustic guitar, sitting around in my underwear, just picking out riffs, pieces of songs. Maybe Kurt will come in with a melody, uh, a guitar riff, and um, show it to us. We go to practice, and then we play the song over and over and over again. We just jam. There's no real formula. Chris and Dave have a big part in deciding on how long a song should be and how many parts it should have. So I, I don't like to be considered as the whole songwriter, but I do come up with the basis of it. I come up with the singing style during practice, and then I write the lyrics usually minutes before we record. Nevertheless, Kurt did become the spokesperson against corruption, which we'll hear about later in the show. The songwriting was just one part of the success of Nevermind. The polished sound production was what made the album stand out. According to Butch Vig, Drain You, had more guitar overdubs than any other song on the album. One track was clean, the other five were distorted. One track was even called the Super Grunge track. This track is actually a pure example of Butch Vig's incredible insight into grunge, producing a track that is one of the best representations to what grunge would eventually become. It is easy to hear why Butch became the poster producer for the Seattle grunge scene. This is one of Nirvana's most popular tracks from the album and one of Cobain's favourite tracks that he never got tired of playing. Drain You from Nirvana on the Beat Generation's look at the classic album Nevermind. One baby to another says I'm lucky to meet you
Drain You from Nevermind by Nirvana. We'll be back with a look at the album's success and impact on this special season finale of The Beat Generation. Hi, this is Shane. And Andrew from The Bad Boys. If you're after quality, hard-hitting journalism that matches four corners... News that'll keep the government and the people accountable for their actions... And current affairs that's more reliable than, well, a current affair... Then then that's that's not us. us. Bad Boys Unleashed. Music entertainment, celebrity interviews and the only original Bad Boys news that makes 60 Minutes sound like the Muppets. Join me, him and bad girl Angie for the conversation that no one wants to have but everybody wants to hear. Bad Boys Unleashed, subscribe for free on Apple and Spotify. This is The Beat Generation, a look at music throughout the years that changed our world, from the original beat poets of the 50s through to the musicians of the 60s until today. They've become known for their influence on music that has shaped the soundtrack of our lives, simply known as The Beat Generation. Welcome back to The Beat Generation, produced in association with Bad Boys Media and Townsville's Triple T FM. I'm Shane Bryan, joined by another member of The Bad Boys, Andrew Hackett, as we look into albums that have changed our lives by artists that have changed the face of the musical landscape. Make sure you check out our Facebook page, Music That Changed the World, and our Instagram page, The Beat Generation Podcast. Some great albums never get the start they deserve, but Nevermind by Nirvana was released at exactly the right time in history. Let me explain. You see, Nevermind represented a generational shift not dissimilar to the start of rock and roll in the 50s. What started with the punk rock scene was continued on with the grunge movement as the attention turned towards the corruption of the time. Nevermind spoke to the overlooked, the ignored, the outcast and the teens of the time felt that so strongly. Whether they liked it or not, Nirvana had just become their spokesperson. We don't like to think of ourselves as a political band because you know you tend to become too anal and it's, it becomes ridiculous if you shove it down people's throats. You know, we just ask people to be aware a little bit, and I think the songs kind of reflect that. It's just another issue, another topic. Like, we could talk about racism, we could talk about feminism, nationalism. I don't really subscribe to that way of thought at all. There's just so much corruption going on with the government, and the Reagan years have definitely set us back to where the average teenager feels kind of lost, and. There isn't much hope. They're still at least aware of the mistakes that our parents' generation has made. And I just think that it'll take a little bit of time for kids to um, start doing the duties that they're supposed to do, which is challenge things like corruption. The way Americans' money is budgeted by our government, it leaves nothing to the education system. Teachers are dealing with the future, you know. Teachers are dealing with kids growing up who's going to take care of me or you someday just the education system in general in a lot of places is really screwed you know it's great to get 
information like that so you can um, form your own ideas. It'd be neat if, like, you know, the 60s had, a, like, Abby Hoffman or uh, John Sinclair, you know, Timothy Leary to an extent, and they were spokespeople, and they were shaking things up, and nowadays there's not really anybody. There has never been an album in recent history that has had the same level of impact that Nevermind did. You could almost say it was less about the album and more about what the band represented. It was a confusing time. Kids were being told to act and think a certain way, while Nirvana just said to forget all about that and just come as you are. A top 10 song in eight countries, Come As You Are, was Cobain saying that there was room in the damaged world for everyone. This is The Beat Generation and our look at Nirvana's Nevermind. The lines in the song are really contradictory. You know, one after another, they're kind of a rebuttal to each line and they're just kind of confusing, I guess. It's just about people and what they're expected to act like. Yeah.
was recorded for it we'd kind of forgotten about putting a cello on it and we had one more day in the studio and we decided oh geez we should try to hire a cellist you know and put something in and we were at a party and we were asking some of our friends if they had any friends who played cello and it just so happens one of our best friends in LA plays cello so we took him into the studio on the last day and said here play something and he came up with something right away it just fell like dominoes it's really easy from Nevermind on this week's Beat Generation look at the classic Nirvana album. 
The artwork on the album is without question one of the most iconic covers in history and not without controversy. The baby on the cover, the monkey and meat on the back. It offended everyone and as a result was a smash hit. The label even wanted to prepare an alternative cover, but Cobain won and the iconic cover became history. One day, Dave and I were sitting around watching a documentary on babies being born underwater and uh, we thought that was a really neat image. So we thought, let's put that on the album cover. And then when we got back a picture of a baby underwater, we thought it w- I thought it would look nice for a fish hook with a dollar bill on it. So the image was born. One song on the album, Polly, dated back to 1988 and has been recorded at least four times that we know of prior to the album, as well as live recordings. The song is a real story about a 14-year-old girl who was abducted in 1987 and managed to escape at the gas station. It was as if Cobain was apologising for his gender and the horrific impact that these events had on the victim and society. The song was typical of the style of writing that Nevermind was filled with. He was a master of placing himself into the first person role of the song. Just because I say I in the song doesn't necessarily mean it me. A lot of people have a problem with that. It's just the way I write usually take on someone else's personality or character. I'd rather just use someone else's example because, I don't know, my life is kind of boring. So, you know, I just take stories from things that I've read and off the television and stories I've heard and maybe even some friends. All he wants a cracker Think I should get off her first Think she wants some water Come 
dirty wings Let me take a ride Cut yourself Want some help Please myself Got some rope Haven't told Promise you Haven't true Let me take a ride Cut yourself Want some help Please myself with the success of the album, which has sold over 30 million copies worldwide, the band were accused by many as selling out. I really don't know what the definition of selling out is anymore. I guess I really don't care. We haven't compromised. A record label lets us do anything we want. We think on the same level. There's nothing that we've done that, that could be considered a sellout at all, at least not in my eyes. A lot of people who are calling a sellout, they forget that you know, the Ramones and the Sex Pistols were on major labels. So it was a clash. And they all, all those bands are trying to become big stars. They didn't even deny it. Crap, the, the Ramones had a movie out after them, you know, to help support them. You know, I think if you make money and you start voting Republican because you'll get tax breaks and they're the party of the rich, I mean, that's sold out. Yet with all of its criticism, the album went on to become one of the most culturally significant recordings of the 20th century and even changed the recording industry. Gary Gersh from Geffen Records said that there is a pre-Nirvana and a post-Nirvana record business. Nevermind showed that this wasn't just some alternative thing happening. This was reality. I'll never get over the shock, and that's kind of good. It was um, sort of a really whatever organic thing there wasn't any massive hype i mean there was definitely no big million dollar investment in, in promotion behind this record at all it's totally organic and it just happened you know whatever's happened is was surely out of our control and i'm glad it happened you know it's nice to sell that many records it's nice to turn on people as something different people telling me oh yeah you guys record i, I think you guys are gonna go platinum we're like oh man come on you know if we get a gold record out of this that'll be amazing it's not my fault i've never wanted the fame involved that's that's a totally different story i think paul stanley said something like the only thing that money gives you is relief of not having to worry about money As we've seen, the album's success was owed greatly to songwriting and the lyrics which struck a chord with the troubled youth. From the outside politics to the internal family struggles, Nevermind became the voice of the youth at the time. On a Plane was the last song on Nevermind that Cobain had to write, and although it sounds like pieces of poetry thrown together, the song detailed the abusive behaviour between Cobain and his mother. It was classic alienation, and the audience lapped it up.
Nevermind was a moment in time, a snapshot of the start of a movement that would be felt around the world. Upon hearing this album, teenagers formed garage bands. Struggling bands changed their direction towards the Seattle grunge sound, and critics called this the second best album of all time, behind the Beatles' Revolver. For all of its praise and equal amount of criticism, the band were unsatisfied. It was too polished. Well, our next record's going to be different. It's going to be way different. Well, I wouldn't want to put out two of the same record. We'd like to record every song differently. These are just ideas that we have. You know, I know, I know it's going to be a, a record of extremities. I think we had our shot at doing the uh, big studio, high-tech Hollywood thing, whatever, you know. I mean, that studio to us was like pretty, like, techno. I don't know, maybe we'll do the next record on 8-track. That will be recorded on 8-track. You can get more low-end frequencies out of an 8-track. Go back to the bleach sound. Back to that, sort of more along the lines of bleach. Because I really like the production of bleach, and I don't know, I feel kind of weird straying so far away from it. We got this far with this record. There's definitely going to be some more abrasive songs on the next record. You know, we're going to do something, just totally test the limits. Really raw and abrasive to very uh, pretty and candy-ish. All the radio listeners or the MTV watchers or whoever just like really test them and shove something totally aggro in their face and you know, see if they can handle that. In 1993, the band released In Utero, No Butch Big. The new producer, Steve Albini, created a much more organic sound, more abrasive and less commercial. It was, of course, the last Nirvana album before the band broke up following Cobain's suicide in 1994. Even to this day, his reasons are unknown. However, one thing that we can remain certain of is that his influence as the main songwriter in Nirvana has remained unmatched. Without Kurt, there may not have been Seattle grunge. Grohl may not have started Foo Fighters and even Australia's own Silverchair would have sounded completely different. Of course, the legacy of Cobain and Nirvana shines through in the song that has been dubbed as the anthem for the apathetic kids of Generation X, Smells Like Teen Spirit. It has been hailed throughout the years since and of course parodied many times, but the song in the subsequent video was entered into the Grammy Hall of Fame in 2017 for its impact on the world of rock. This friend of mine and I were goofing around in my house one night and we were kind of drunk and we were writing graffiti all over the walls of my house and she wrote, Kurt smells like teen spirit. And earlier on we were kind of having this discussion on revolution and teen revolution and stuff like that and I took that as a compliment. I thought that she was saying that I was a person who, who could inspire. I just thought that was a, it was a nice little title. And it turns out she just meant that I smelt like the deodorant. I didn't even know that deodorant existed until after the song was written. My father said this to me. I know why you guys have sold so many records. The video shows a bunch of kids trashing a gymnasium. <laughs> and I mean, that sort of works. Like a Nirvana spokesman of the lost generation. They're telling you to go out and destroy your local gymnasium. I don't really, I don't see it that way. I mean, like, I don't want to hold the responsibility of being a spokesman for anything. You know, I can barely hold my own. I guess it's flattering. And I guess it's great that it actually sort of gives people a feeling of sort of like breaking out and um, telling anyone and anything just to fuck off. And of course that brings us to the end of the show and the end of season three of The Beat Generation and our look at albums that changed our world. 
These 12 albums were just a snapshot of the thousands of albums that have impacted the lives of listeners and changed the face of the musical landscape. Feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page, Music That Changed the World, and tell us what album you'd like to see in an upcoming episode. We'll be back soon with Season 4, but until then, to take us out, Smells Like Teen Spirit from Nirvana's Nevermind album. I'm Shane Bryan. And I'm Andrew Hackett, and this has been The Beat Generation. Generation.